0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Francis Sellers, a senior writer here at The Washington Post. UNICEF recently released its State of the World's Children report, which showed an alarming decrease in faith in childhood vaccinations. In just three years of the pandemic, the world lost a decade's worth of progress in childhood immunizations. Here to help me understand what this means means is UNICEF's executive director, Catherine Russell. Cathy, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Cathy, I'd love to start by understanding from you the scope of this, and perhaps you can respond to that by just giving us a sense of what UNICEF does. You buy 2 billion doses a year, I think. So what's happening? What's the threat here to children?
1: Well, I I think the important thing is to step back for a second and to think about how important vaccines have been to the world, right? I mean, I don't know how old you are, Francis, but I remember uh, when I was a young kid, people talking about the dangers of polio, right? But I never really saw a child who'd suffered from polio, right? Vaccines have solved so many huge problems in the world, smallpox, polio, and other things. And I think... Um, We've seen incredible progress over the years of getting children immunized, moving children away from the place where from preventable deaths, you know, they were suffering for so many decades, decades, and and even uh, centuries. And we have had just tremendous progress. So then what happens? You know, the COVID comes along, and and I would say even before COVID, there were challenges. I mean, there were, you know, if you look at the most marginalized children, it was always hard to get some of these children vaccinated. But COVID has really set us back. And I think that is the challenge, and that's that's what we're here talking about today. What UNICEF does is a couple of things. One, we actually vaccinate children and provide vaccines around the world. You saw it in that photo, uh, the little video of me giving a child some um a polio vaccine. And, and, you know, it's such an easy, simple thing to do, but obviously saves children's lives and keeps them from being paralyzed by polio. We do that all over the world. And we also provide a lot of vaccines. UNICEF is a um, huge uh, sort of supplier of vaccines to countries and to medical facilities all around the world. So vaccines are often described as sort of victims of their own success. We no
0: longer see those um, polio patients you were talking about. But who are the people now? Paint a little picture for me. Who are the people now who are not getting vaccines? Has that portrait yeah. changed?
1: It has changed because b- before COVID, it was really the most uh, hard-to-reach communities where we were struggling to to get children vaccinated. <clears throat> Excuse me. And those places, you know, it was kind of a persistent challenge. Always working with countries trying to make sure that they had the um, sort of healthcare infrastructure, and that we could supplement that with vaccines, but but challenging nevertheless. Once COVID hit, the, the challenge was so much worse. Uh, and we're seeing it in really every country in the world now where we've seen a little bit of a, a fallback and in some places, a pretty dramatic fallback in their ability to get children vaccinated. Why? It's because, you know, it, it was many things. One we all suffered from the, the just the lockdown during COVID, right? So children couldn't get out, parents couldn't get children out to doctors uh, to get their routine immunizations. Um, two, basic health services in all parts of the world were really uh, impacted by this, disrupted. You know, we couldn't get things like syringes and vials. It was just hard to do that because the the everything was disrupted by COVID. Um, and as I said, families were in lockdown. Um, and we also, you know, it's a, we've unfortunately seen places where this question of vaccines has become more politicized than we would like to see. And I think that sort of politicization, vaccine hesitancy is definitely an issue that we're struggling with.
0: I'm gonna be asking you more about that, but you've been on this job, I think, for only about 14 months. In that time you've spent time on the ground,
1: feels, boots on the ground. Minute, it feels like two months and like twenty years
0: at the same time. <laughs> All right, I'm sure. But what yeah. does it feel like? What are you what are you seeing when you're out there, boots on the ground? What do you want what picture do you want
1: to paint to our viewers? You know, this is what I, I see. I, on the one hand, I see terrible impacts for children all around the world. And it's, it's certainly not just COVID, although COVID has had a very dramatic impact, which people don't ordinarily think about because they don't think of children as the, the people who suffer the most from COVID. And that's true. But what we've seen is about 100 million families plunged into poverty because of COVID. We've seen children not getting their routine vaccinations. We've seen children, you know, in situations where their schools are closed, for months, months, months on end, and so they've lost so much education. One number that I I use, which is so horrifying to think about, but 70% of 10-year-olds in the world now have trouble reading and understanding a very simple sentence or doing simple math calculations. That lost learning is a dramatic, terrible problem for children, and we're working hard to try to address that. So I see that. I see conflicts. Ukraine, obviously, that's in the news every day now. People see that. But it's not the only one. You know, we still have problems in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Yemen, where children are really suffering. Um, Conflict is, is one of the worst things for children because it upsets and unsettles all of the services that children rely on. So whether that's medical services or nutrition or education, all those things, children are very vulnerable to that to that sort of disruption. And finally, I have seen, and I didn't fully appreciate this before I got in the job, I've seen the impact of climate change uh, and climate disruption on children and their families. And I was in Ethiopia last year. It was really shocking to see how dry it was to see the animals in these communities dying and that the people aren't that far behind right and so what happens they pick up and they move to other places so all of these things are coming together and we talk about it as a poly crisis a confluence of crisis whatever you want to call it it's a very very difficult time to be a child in the world right now and we are working hard to try to address it now the upside is that I do feel like UNICEF knows what to do. We have, you know, (laughs) decades of experience, right? We know how to have an impact in these situations, but trying to first get the attention and then mobilize the resources is a challenge. Kathy, you speak very
0: compellingly about the impact of the pandemic on faith in vaccines, but the signs were there before, right? I think that uh, vaccine hesitancy was seen as one of the top 10 global health threats
1: before the pandemic. Were we alert to those signs? Yes, I think so. I, th- I think we knew. And, you know, what? look, I, I always think about it as a parent myself, right? When I remember getting my own kids vaccinated and I I definitely thought about it for a minute, right? I, I mean, I didn't object to it. I was grateful for the vaccines. And I, I think so fortunate to live in a country where they're obviously so readily ex- uh, accessible. But I, I did think about it for a second. And I thought, you know, in getting my child injected with these things, I read, I read about it and I felt comfortable. And I think that Um, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, let me say that. But I think it is incontrovertible that vaccines help people. They save lives. As I said at the outset, if you you think about smallpox or polio, has made a huge difference uh, around the world. And so I think Um, You know, the uncertainty to me, I understand that. The place where it becomes really problematic is when there's true disinformation, misinformation. And one of the problems, uh, Francis, is that we see it spread on social media. Right. And that's that's the world we live in now. Right. Where these kind of I'm not saying they're crazy, but these mm, incorrect this incorrect information can fly around um the the internet and i think people you know they sit there they read it they're worried about their children i i don't i I don't find fault with that i find fault with the people who spread you know disinformation but i for parents to think twice about it i'm fine with that read the research figure out you know what the situation is but it's so obvious to me that this is a helpful thing to humanity and we need to get these kids vaccinated Kathy, do you think UNICEF and other groups have pushed
0: back hard enough against true vaccine deniers or anti-vaxxers, as opposed to the reasonably hesitant people that you're describing in the middle who want more information before they go ahead? Have we done enough? What's to be done going ahead? Yeah, No,
1: it's such a good question. And, you know, I think what, what we're seeing is we think it's a small number of people. They're just really loud. Right. And they push this nonsense around, and I do think that all of us in the international community, the health community, uh, children's community, <coughs> excuse me, have to be <coughs> more aggressive and say that this information is is really wrong. Uh, and I think maybe you know, as as you're suggesting, it did. This problem existed before uh, COVID. We know now from COVID that it's become more of a challenge, and it has in some places become politicized. That's the worst situation, right? We're we're focused on saving children's lives, che- making sure children are healthy. That's not a political question. That's a health question. That's a, that's a question of humanity, right? And what do we wanna do? Who do we wanna protect? And hopefully the answer is we wanna protect the most vulnerable among us. I'm gonna ask you some
0: more about this, but but first okay. describe to me a little bit how the pandemic affected health systems. It's not just the individual and the vaccine, right? There's a whole system at play mm-hmm. here and what was disrupted
1: yeah well i mean you know we're sitting here in the united states right and and we saw that there were huge impacts to our system here by COVID. imagine countries that don't have those sort of robust health systems right they were already fragile already burdened by uh, either lack of resources lack of knowledge whatever it is um it was really difficult for them for sure to try to, to try to deal with these challenges and i think um, you know from our perspective it's it, it's there's a there's an opportunity here which is to say we need we know the international community has known for a long time we need to build up the health systems around the world right they're the first sign of of, of a problem uh, they're the they're the sort of the the services that children really need in these communities but it, they're, they are underdeveloped in many places. And we're looking to try to think about how to do that better. One, one area where we're very focused on is trying to dramatically increase the number of community health workers around the world. Why? Because a couple of reasons. One, these community health workers, assuming that they're professionalized, which means to paid, uh, which many of them right now are not paid, they're volunteers. But if they're paid, if they're trained well, if they're supported with technology and other things, they're out in these communities and they know what's happening. They know what the concerns are among community members. They also know who is vaccinated, who's not vaccinated, what the other challenges are. They're a good first line of defense on things like Ebola and other challenges that we want to make sure we know early that are happening, any kind of other um, sort of COVID-like challenge. You know, these community health workers are out there and can see that. The second great thing about community health workers is they're almost always women. and so supporting them providing resources for them does two things one it provides this great um sort of on the ground health service provided by people who are trained and know what they're doing and second and in many places this is really important it builds up the status of these women it makes them it, it makes it clear to the community that these are people of you know with knowledge with expertise uh it makes gives them some compensation and it really raises their status and in you know, I used to work on, on women's issues. I would say in every part of the world, this is a challenge, right? This is a challenge. And this is a really good way to do both of those things. And so we're excited about that. We're working hard to increase the numbers of community health workers. And we're going to probably do a big announcement about it this year. Um, but I think it's a, it is a way to really help try to address this problem.
0: Kathy, you used the term zero-dose children in the report, and I'd love to learn a little bit more about who the children are who are missing out, how many zero-dose children or under-vaccinated children there are, and why you chose to highlight these three kids in the report who are so compelling.
1: Yeah, they were. Um, you know, zero-dose means that, they're ch- that these are children who have never had a vaccine, any kind of vaccination. And we estimate there are about 48 million of those children in the world. That's a lot of children, right? And I think it's problematic for two important reasons. One, these means these children are, you know, they are susceptible to getting diseases like measles, which can be deadly, like polio, like diphtheria, all these terrible things that they shouldn't have to get, uh, they can get. And I think that's incredibly um, concerning for us. And I think we have to try, uh, you know, our best to, 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 let's put it this way. Many children in the world die from many terrible things every year, right? If there are things that we can prevent, we need to do better at preventing them and making sure that children are not getting those. But the second important thing is, in addition to the actual vaccines, it means if these children are zero-dose children, it, it likely means that they've never really had any interaction with the health system, right? Because if they had, they would have gotten vaccinated. And it also means that their mothers probably didn't, which means that they were less likely to get any sort of support during pregnancy, get antenatal care. So really making sure that we provide this access to services and to the vaccines is absolutely critically important for children's health and for their mothers. So
0: you referred earlier on to medical misinformation and also the instability many of these children are living with and particularly those three you highlighted. Um, tell me a little bit more about what UNICEF is doing to penetrate displacement camps um, and some areas of turmoil um, to make sure that medical misinformation does not take over there.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of it is working with people that people in the community trust, right? And that, that again, not to repeat myself, it goes back to these community health workers, right? If you have people there who really are trusted by the community, whether it's a community leader or community health care worker, those are the best line of defense in trying to combat this misinformation, right? Because it, at the end of the day, the question for anybody who hears this information is, who do you trust and why do you trust them and what what will you believe? And if we can find the people who are most trusted, I think that's tremendously helpful. And one of the advantages UNICEF has in this regard is that we, we are a community-based effort right we have thousands of employees all around the world they are part of these communities they work with people on the ground we don't people aren't sitting in headquarters somewhere that's not the way we work and i think that gives us a lot of credibility with these families and with the communities to say look we're trying to help now i would say you know you ask about the the no dose i mean these children are, are, many of them are in places that are actually physically hard to get to, right? They're, they're, they're in remote settings. They're, they're harder for us to find. Even if they're in a, in the middle of a city, they can just be harder for us to get access to because of the communities they live in. You ask about, you know, camps. And in a way, the refugee camps, things like that, it's almost easier for us because we have them all there, right? They're in one place we can get our folks in we can talk to them we can work with them and i think that in a in in some sense it's, it's a little bit of an easier task but people who are out Even if you think about in the United States, it's not really a challenge in the same way here. But if you think about the most, you know, the hardest to reach physically, um, those times, sometimes often the poorest, the most disadvantaged. Um, You know, in other countries, a lot of times children who are disabled don't go to school. Uh, So trying to find children who are disabled in these sort of ethnic communities, it can just be really challenging to get to them.
0: Kathy, we have an audience question It goes back to this question of medical misinformation. I'm going to ask you it. Um, It comes from Jack in Maryland, who asks what is UNICEF's approach to combating the campaign of disinformation about the effectiveness of child vaccines? And as you answer, maybe you can focus particularly on what's the role of leadership here.
1: What's your role? Yeah, well, I, I think you know Jack asked a really good question. It is it's it's hard to get information because, as I said, a lot of this stuff swirls around on social media, right? And I think that I I would say my role as a leader is one thing, but there's also a really important role for community leaders, for political leaders to tell the truth, to get information out there that is helpful to people, and most importantly, not to spread bad information. You know, whether you're doing it because you just haven't taken the time to figure out that you're wrong, or that you are doing it for any kind of political reason, that is really an abomination from my perspective, right? Because these are children's lives. And it's, you know, people can play, I spent my life, you know, in, in the political world, you know, you can be political about a lot of things, but you should not politicize children's health, it's wrong.
0: Well, one of the things you have a lot of experience in is women's advocacy, and and you've mentioned the importance of women in, in conveying good information and in winning trust for vaccines. What kind of support do mothers need uh, to make sound decisions for their children?
1: You know, it's so interesting because I've seen so many mothers around the world working so hard to try to take care of their children, right? I mean. Yes. Can you find somebody who doesn't love her child, doesn't care? Yes, of course. But I would say, I, I, first of all, I have never seen that. But I, I have seen mothers caring for children in the most difficult circumstances. Um, and you know, sometimes you know, children mothers will come in, they'll bring their child who's severely malnourished, really in some places, you know, on the verge of dying, and the mother is just trying her best to do what she can, and she's doing that in really difficult circumstances. As I said. Um, sometimes, you know, in just abject poverty, uh, sometimes in places where women aren't highly regarded. You know, in some places, it, it's this old adage of, you know, the, the mothers and the girls eat last, you know, the boys eat first. And it's just, it can just be very challenging. But these mothers, they're they're like mothers everywhere, right? They love their children. They're trying to do the best they can for their children. And they need the help they can to get that. Now, i, I give you just one good example about that. I, I was in Rwanda, Last year, and it was. We, we was. I was looking at a program where we were working on nutrition issues, and it was a really interesting community because it was a, you know, a, it was an agriculture community that had a lot of vegetables and healthy food uh, that they were growing and selling, uh, and the women were doing pretty well there. But the children were still malnourished, and we were, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. So it turns out that even though they were raising chickens and selling eggs, they weren't giving their children uh, an egg every day, right? Because they didn't know that children needed the protein. So some of this is really working with the parents to educate them about what a child needs in, in his or her diet. And it was such a simple fix, you know, not not expensive, not high tech technology, just a very simple thing to, to help these mothers understand what their children needed. And that's an example of what we can do because we're there and we see what's happening and we see what they need.
0: Yeah, these wonders of of low tech, but important interventions. And and, and talk about the importance of female healthcare workers in conveying Mm. messages.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, these female healthcare workers, I I can't even tell you how courageous they are. You know, if you, we have um, female uh, health workers who are just in the most remote parts of Afghanistan, Pakistan, out delivering polio vaccines. I mean, they are brave. They're committed. Uh, they're trusted by their communities. You know, in in many places, women, especially if you're working on women and children, uh, it's it can be harder for male healthcare workers to do that. In some communities, that's just not accepted to have that. So these women are cr- absolutely critical to us in getting to these communities. Uh, and they just I, I can't I I can't say enough about how much they. They love their communities. They're working hard to protect these children. They're so courageous and they just, they work so hard to try to save as many lives as they possibly can.
0: Kathy, I want to step back and ask this kind of big question. UNICEF says it's a pivotal moment and we're understanding that from what you're saying. It's also mm-hmm. a pivotal moment in terms of opportunities from mRNA vaccines and also need in terms of combating diseases like TB that, um, are now facing antibiotic resistance with the drugs we normally use against them. How? What's UNICEF's role in turning this huge and ever more complicated ship around? Yeah,
1: well, it's, it's a good way to describe it. Uh, it is, you know, the, the challenges keep coming and they're different, right? They're, they're not always the same. And the same. opportunities, right? The, the challenges are there. The opportunities are there. And I think one thing that we've seen and one thing I've seen certainly in my work on women's issues is that, if you can give girls and women opportunities, right? If they can have a healthy life, if you can avoid them getting married early and start having children early, if you can, if you can try to keep them in school as long as possible, get them into some kind of situation where they can earn an income, they can contribute so much to their families, to their communities, to their countries. And I think I look at that as an as an a, an issue overall for us, right? If we can keep children healthy, if we can keep mothers healthy. These these are great um, contra- contributors, you know, to their to their to their communities and their societies, and ultimately to the world. And right now, the world is in need of a lot of uh, good ideas, good good thinking, good work, uh, and women are absolutely critical to that. And I think if if you if you think about every single child deserves an opportunity. Every single child deserves to be uh, raised in a, in a you know place where they get an education, where they get health care, where they have a, a potential for a happy uh, life. That That's everything to us, right? And that's what we try to do every single day. Kathy, you
0: again, you speak so compellingly about the on-the-ground experience, but you're also having to deal with governments and with philanthropy and all these other organizations. Maybe you could help me unpack uh, the way you think governments need to step up.
1: And also, what's the role of philanthropy here? Yeah. Well, let me talk about governments in two two different yeah. ways. On the one hand, you have governments where, where we have the needs, right, where the needs are really tremendous. And there, governments do need, they need to do better, certainly. Now, in some cases, it's very challenging, right? Some co- countries are burdened by debt. I mean, they have lots of difficult challenges. But I think the most important thing is that they have to put children at the center of their work and their thinking. And if they do that, <clears throat> you know, we are certainly there to help. We can we can. Do better, but they have to. It has to be intentional on their part. They can't just. It's not going to happen unless people are truly, truly committed to it. Now, with the richer countries like United States and other countries, they are tremendously supportive of our work, and I cannot thank the United States government enough and the people of the United States who support UNICEF's work around the world. That makes all the difference. These governments, you know, they have they have resources, and I know they feel like they have limited resources, but they have a lot of resources compared to others. And they also have a lot of expertise. And the United States, I mean, I I have to say, you know, I'm probably not supposed to say this anymore as as the head of a U.N. agency. But I am incredibly proud to be an American because the United States does a lot of great things around the world. They try to help a lot of people, um, both through resources and through manpower and experience, uh, sharing, you know, technology and other things with, with people who really need it. And so I think that that's a critical part of it. Philanthropy plays a really critical role here. And we work with some philanthropic partners who are amazing and really think about putting children first and trying to figure out how they can use the resources they have to do that. They understand, I think it's two things. One, every child deserves a decent life, right? But it's also in everyone's interest for that to happen. Every country is better off if all children are doing well, right? If children are educated, if children are healthy, that makes the world a better place for everyone. And the one thing we know from COVID is that problems don't stay in one place, right? You you have a pandemic that starts one place, next thing you know, it's everywhere. And so we have to do our best everywhere to help every child. And that's what UNICEF is committed to. Kathy, we're
0: getting close to running out of time, but I don't want to let you go without asking you about Sudan. I know UNICEF put out a report last Thursday, April 20th. What are the latest figures you're seeing about threats to children, and what is UNICEF doing to try to protect them from extreme violence?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Sudan—it's interesting because it raises exactly the problems that we're talking about, which is one that. Even before this crisis, you know, we were there, we were working hard in the Sudan. The challenges were real. We had lots of children who were suffering from um, severe malnutrition. We had children who we needed to get, you know, back on track in terms of their education. And those numbers were significant. But now what happens is we have a conflict on top of that. So all of the work, right, everything UNICEF was doing and others in the international community, and there are many people working there, everything came to a grinding halt. Right. The UN, you, you saw yesterday, the United States uh, moved out of their embassy. The United Nations uh, personnel have had to move out of Khartoum because, you know, they were at risk. You know, three, I think it was three World Food Program people were killed. Another uh, staff person, I think, from IOM was killed. I mean, it's it's we take the risk. We know we work in difficult situations. My my teams are always you know pushing to get into these places. They want to They want to try to help the communities you can't do that when you're literally in the middle of a, of a battle and that's what's happening now. Now why that's happening, you know, in a way it's like, I, I, I sometimes just get so impatient with the fighting all around the world. It's like, you know, just the adults need to try to resolve these problems because the people who suffer are the children and that's not acceptable. And that is certainly the case in Sudan. So now we'll wait, you know, as soon as we can, our, our, folks will get in there and do the humanitarian response, which is like providing water, uh, providing some education, providing as much safety as we can, trying to make sure that children are reunited with families when they get separated, all those things that always happen in conflict. But you know what? It's so unnecessary. Why? Why does this have to happen? And I, I, it just sometimes pains me you know, to think about the human condition and why we end up in these horrible situations that really impact the most vulnerable people the most. Kathy, I'm going to give you one last word, and that is if you have one message to other
0: governments and to people out there about what should happen to try to help the children of Sudan, what is it?
1: I think what we have to do is, I would say two things. One, encourage these parties to stop the the violence, the, the, the hostilities need to stop. And then two, the second we get the opportunity, we need to go in and help and do our best. They're going to need a lot of humanitarian support and help. Uh, and and I think everyone needs to to do that. But I have to say, um, Francis, it's not just it's not just Sudan. You know, there are so many places in the world where we start to forget Yemen, Syria, other places where children are really in need because of these horrible conflicts. Ukraine, obviously, you know, on top of mind. But it's it's many places, and we need to keep all of these children in mind.
0: Kathy Russell, that's a sobering but very important note to end on. Thank you so much for joining me today to remind us about. The importance of looking after the children in our world.
1: Thank you, Francis.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.